This morning, what we want to do is just talk about some lessons from Christmas, and I'm going to, it's going to be a little bit interactive. So at the right time, if I ask you to yell at the answer, yell at the answer. Please don't yell when I'm in the middle of a sentence. That throws all of us off. But I will be asking you for some back and forth a little bit this morning, okay? Now, as we talk about lessons from Christmas, some of the first things that came to my mind were um, don't drive anywhere near Polo Park in the month of December. <laughs> Take the bus. Uh, that's been my secret. Um, perhaps uh, you bought all your Christmas supplies for next year on Boxing Day. That's a useful tip, too. Because um, they need to put that stuff somewhere. Um, and thirdly, I don't know if this bothers you or not, but there's probably a reason that eggnog is a seasonal drink. There's probably a reason it only shows up one month a year. But who likes eggnog here? Any eggnog fans? Okay, sorry for hurting your feelings. Two hands from Jerry. All right, two thumbs up, bro. Good. So I don't mean to sound too Grinch-like, but there are some things that we can learn. As we look back at a Christmas story, uh, it's very familiar to, to many of us, but what I'd like to do this morning is look a little bit at the characters and what we can kind of learn from their story and what we can transfer to our lives. Because it's not just a nice little story for a particular time of year. God has these things in mind for us, for our benefit. The Bible says that Scripture was written for our good, for our instruction. It's God's direct word to us. And we can learn from it. Especially when we go back and we consider the, what's called the genre, the type of writing it was in, in its historical setting. That's how we get the most out of it. Well, let's continue. Who was, um, if you're under the age of 12 here, you're eligible for this question. Okay. Who was Jesus' mom, anyway? What was her name? Mary. All right. Okay. Not sure of her last name, but her first name is Mary. Okay. Now, when you think about Mary, the angel appearing to Mary out of the blue, I, she didn't exactly volunteer for this role, but God asked her to do that. What kind of things do you learn about Mary, learn about God from Mary? Like, why, why did she uh, respond so well to this opportunity? What, what do you learn about what do you learn about Mary? Like what's significant about her? P pardon? Trust. Trust. Yeah. It takes a lot of faith. I think Mary had a lot of courage. I think she had a lot of courage. She took God at his word, right? When the angel said, guess what? You're favored among women. You, women, you are blessed. God is going to use you uh, to, you know, carry Jesus to term, to full term. And uh, she's saying, well, I don't really get this because uh, there are children here. We'll let adults explain all the details later. But I've never really been with men. And so how am I going to have a baby? How will this be? It's like, how is this going to work? And the angel says, don't worry. God's got it all covered. Just, just, just go with it. And uh, 
There's something about her courage and trust that's really admirable. And I think she had a lot of courage going home to her family. Now, we know we, we, she went and visited her cousin Elizabeth for a few months and saw that this lady was also having an unexpected, miraculous pregnancy. And I think that really encouraged her and cemented in her, hey, God is in this. And uh, she stayed with Elizabeth for several months. But then she went home to her family. She'd have to kind of face the news and deal with all the family fallout and potential scandal and people talking about her in the neighborhood and, you know, explaining it to her fiancé. So it's one person that stands out in the Christmas story. It's just the courage and what it costs to follow Jesus. If you're going to follow God, if you're going to be used by him, there's a cost and it's a risk. Yet he promises to be with us even through all the turbulent waters and, and difficult times, God promises to be with us. Okay, there was a guy in the story. There was Mary and... Joseph. Joseph, right, that was his name. Do you know what Joseph's job was? What did he do for a living? Was he a milkman? Um, plumber? Oh, they didn't have indoor plumbing back then. What? He was a carpenter, right. Okay, he worked with his hands, right? He was a skilled tradesman. What I appreciate about Joseph is that the Bible says he was a stand-up guy. Well, actually, I think the King James said he was a righteous man. But that's what it means. He was a stand-up guy. And it dem he demonstrates the fact that he's a stand-up guy because when he heard that his fiancée was pregnant... Did he, he didn't want to publicly shame her. He didn't want to make a huge deal out of it. He just said, he, he just took it in mind, he's just going to quietly divorce her. Because in that culture, being engaged was practically like being married. And you'd have to formally divorce a person. Uh, now, you know, these days we just send people a text or write them a Dear John letter and say, eh, it's off. Hopefully you've never got one of those texts. But anyway... That's what some people do. But, and so Joseph was thinking, well, I'm just going to quietly just annul things. I don't want to make things difficult for Mary. I'm really brokenhearted and confused that this would happen. But, and then, do you remember what happens to Joseph? He's just about to call things off. And what happens to him? Adults, help me out. An angel came to Joseph and appeared in a dream. Like, this is another miraculous... The angels were really busy around Christmas time, right? Really busy. They had a lot of errands. They had a lot of messages to deliver from God. And the angel reassures Joseph, look, don't pull the plug on this. Hang in there with Mary, and it's, it's all good. God is going to intervene. And your job is to protect this young woman... And don't marry her. Don't sleep with her until after the baby's born. So we're going to be really clear about who the dad is in this situation. Joseph, I'm sure he had a great time explaining this to his parents as well, and the neighborhood. He went ahead and did what God had asked him to do. And to me, when I think about the, the Christmas story and the different characters, I think about Joseph. He's just a stand-up guy. The world desperately needs more stand-up guys. So I'm talking to everyone who self-identifies as a male today. Be a stand-up guy. 
Let God give you a backbone. Let God help you develop your brain and your will so that you can serve him because the world needs more stand-up guys. All right? Okay, so it's Mary and Joseph. Um, who else was in the story? They had a job looking after animals. Who looked after the sheep? The sh- oh, those guys. The shepherds, right. What can we learn from the shepherds in this story? Well, do you remember they were working a graveyard ship? They were in the middle, working in the middle of the night, out looking after the sheep, right? Protecting them from wolves and creatures and bees and things like that. Then what happens? Kids, do you remember? Like, what happens to the ship? An angel. What? Another angel? There's angels all over the story, eh? Isn't that wild? Anyway, an angel shows up and says, what is the first thing an angel says to a human being, usually? Don't be afraid. Don't freak out. Just listen to what I have to say. Or in case they fainted, they wait for them to wake up and, you know, they, they talk anyway. And it says, i got great news for you guys. In Bethlehem, baby's born. He's going to be the savior of the world. Go find him. And what do the shepherds do? The shepherds go, it's probably a UFO or something. Or, I have bad pizza or, you know. But they explain it away. What do the shepherds do after they see the angels? What do the shepherds do? Right. They went to visit the baby and said, okay, what's going on? Let's find this baby. Bethlehem was in a really big town, and there probably weren't too many babies lying in mangers in Bethlehem. So it's interesting, though, because I think they kind of woke up the whole town knocking on doors and looking for the baby. And once they found him, they told Mary and Joseph everything, everything that had happened which is so cool. And this is a picture of an artist imagining what it would have been like that night for the shepherds to hear that story. Now, there's something really interesting about shepherds that you may not know. In that culture, shepherds were not allowed to give public testimony in court. They weren't considered reliable. They weren't considered reliable witnesses. They were in the bottom of society. And in fact, they weren't even allowed to, for regular temple worship because they were considered unclean because of their job. So you wouldn't see them in church regularly. They weren't trusted to testify in court. They were kind of a sketchy crew. Even though they had an important job looking after sheep, they were kind of a sketchy group. So it was interesting that God chose to Uh, speak to shepherds, right? Deliver this beautiful message. We put it on Christmas cards, and I like Christmas cards. I'm not against them, but we had these beautiful scenes, and but it wasn't really like that. They were in the middle of nowhere. There were a bunch of nobodies in the middle of nowhere, and boom, this amazing rock concert happens, and then boom, they vanish. And I'm sure it took a while. If I had been one of those shepherds, it would have taken me a couple of minutes to get my night vision back and think, wow, what was that about? But then, 
the shepherds immediately run into town and tell everybody what they've seen, right? Now, were they qualified? What qualified them to be witnesses about this miracle? They had seen it firsthand, right? What qualifies us to tell people about Jesus? If we have experienced Jesus firsthand, if he's making a difference in our lives, and we're starting to see the changes that Jesus does in our lives, that qualifies us to be a witness. It doesn't matter if people think we're reliable. It doesn't matter what, you know, if people think we're at the top of the ladder or at the bottom of the ladder or even nowhere near the ladder, whatever the ladder is. It, it, that doesn't matter. The thing I love about the shepherds is that they were so overcome with joy. They, they woke up the whole village saying, where's the baby? You won't believe what happened. And the Bible says that everyone marveled. They didn't necessarily believe what the shepherds were saying, but they were like scratching their heads and saying in, in Hebrew, what the dickens? What is going on? Like, what is going on here? What is God doing? What, is, what are these crazy shepherds doing now? So one thing I love about the shepherds is that they just told people what they know. And that's what witnessing to Jesus does. That's how, how God, when we encounter God, it changes us so much we just can't shut up. Okay, so we've got Mary, Joseph, shepherds. Um, pardon? Oh, the kings. Okay, get into that. Thank you. The wise men, right? Now, they didn't appear right on the night that Jesus was born. It's likely much later. But um, we know that, and we, we're not sure if there are exactly three or just a bunch. The Bible isn't really specific. We sing that, that song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Why? Because there are three gifts. What did they give? What did they present to Jesus? Right. Frankincense and gold and myrrh. Right. And even if we're not sure what those words mean, they're really valuable, okay? They're like valuable spices and perfumes and gold. Well, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? You know how valuable that is. And they're gifts fit for a king. Now, this is a little peasant family living in, you know, shelter that, that they don't own. But these, there were Persian astrologers, okay? And back at the time, in, that, in the Persian culture, astrologers were consulted all the time to figure out, okay, what's going to happen? Let's predict the future. And they, they looked at the stars and the way they saw a star in a certain constellation, which was a sign of Judea, that they, they believed that, okay, a king has shown up and we're going to go and worship him. Now, this wasn't like a one-day... WestJet wasn't around then offering its Christmas miracles, okay? Like, this was a long, expensive, and potentially dangerous journey that these people went on. But they thought it was worth doing because they wanted to go and find this new king. So it's incredible when you think about it. I mean, these people weren't even the right kind of people. They weren't, they weren't Jewish. They weren't, you know... They, they were total outsiders and some of the most unlikely people that you would think. And yet the wise men seek out Jesus because they're seeking the truth. The Bible says 
that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. It's a beautiful verse. I love it. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. And so, these wise men at great expense and great risk go and worship Him. And when they find Jesus, what do they do? They celebrate. They rejoice. They go, ha ha, this is it. I mean, he was just a little toddler at the time, not real big, like, but just a little kid. Um, but they rejoice because they know that God has spoken to them in a way that they can understand that this is the baby that's going to change history. Okay, now there's one, now we're talking, we, we've talked about four positive groups of people, four different characters already that have been very positive. There is a bad guy in the story. There is someone who hates Christmas and he's not green and his name is not Ebenezer Scrooge. But someone, I'm sorry? King Herod. Right on. Thanks, Liam. King Herod. King Herod was ruling over Judea at the time. And he wasn't even a legitimate king. He had kind of stolen the throne. He was a nasty piece of work. Really nasty. He had a way of bumping off family members that got in the way. You think your family is dysfunctional. Generally not killing each other over the turkey. At least not literally spilling blood over the turkey. Maybe that puts things a little bit in perspective for you. Anyway, he was a nasty piece of work. And the story goes in Matthew chapter 1 that when he heard that there was a new king, all of a sudden this entourage of foreigners come into town. And it, was, it would have been like a big, like if it had been done today, it would be all kinds of limos and black SUVs pulling into town with all these important dignitaries saying, We've come to worship the king of the Jews. Where is he? Now Herod, who's stolen the throne. And the problem with stealing things, and the problem with lying, is that you're always afraid of getting caught, right? You always know there's a secret to hide. So when we lie, kids and adults, we get found out, right? And we have to lie to cover another lie to cover another lie. And it's like a house of cards, and all of a sudden it... It ultimately collapses. That's what Herod was worried about. Because he had stolen the throne. He was not a legitimate ruler. And he knew that he could easily be deposed and thrown out himself. So he pretends, he cozies up to the wise men, tries to manipulate them to give him the location of this baby so I can worship him too. And the naive wise men said, well, yeah, we'll get back to you, king, about that. And then, would you believe another angel shows up? Another angel, working overtime at Christmas, shows up and tells the wise men, go home, take a different route. Don't have anything to do with this old snake. Herod is furious. He consults with the, the religious leaders of the time. Okay, where's the, where's the Messiah going to be born? Oh, Bethlehem. It's just a few miles out of the town. Now, what is so sad about Herod, he was a wicked man, but he was so close to the truth. 
Why is it? Can somebody tell me why it is that people who go to church all their lives hear about Jesus all the time and they're so close to the truth yet so far from God? It just makes me sad and drives me crazy at the same time. How someone could be so close and not see it. It's heartbreaking. I think people only see what they really want to see. Anyway, we know that story that Mary and Joseph escaped, and, but unfortunately, um, a lot of little kids were, little boys were murdered in Bethlehem because Herod was trying to wipe out the competition. Putting all these stories together, when I think about Christmas, here's what I think about. I mean, now that all the, the turkey and the presents and most of that hype is gone, what are we left with? What do we make of the story of Christmas and what, what we would call the incarnation, God becoming human flesh? What are the implications of that? I think that Christmas is a subversive act of God. I think that God invades human history at Christmas time. How do we know what God is like? By looking at Jesus, by looking at the life of Jesus. That's why God became a human being. How else was he going to show us? Whenever God shows up in the Bible, people are freaking out. Even angels scare people. But Jesus was so approachable and so humble. Who are the kind of people that Jesus liked to hang out with? Well, yeah, some nice people, yeah. He would hang out with you, Isaac, because you're nice. <laughs> but, okay, some of the adults tell me, who did Jesus hang out with? Tax collectors. And what that means in that culture, they were sketchy people. They were traitors to their own people. Because they, can you imagine, now, who here likes paying taxes? Okay. <laughs> One stand-up guy that likes to pay taxes. Right, sure, because that's how we get roads and schools and hospitals and stuff. But can you imagine a tax system where people would work on commission and the more they got, the, the more they sucked out of people, the more money they would get? We complain about the CRA. We have no idea what people in Jesus' time were putting up with. So the tax collectors were traitors. They weren't just mafia. They were like political traders because they worked for the wrong kind of people. So, besides tax collectors, who else did Jesus hang out with? Pardon? Untouchables. Yeah, like people who, who weren't socially accepted. He, uh, I know, with um, prostitutes and uh, people who were just kind of sketchy and, and people that were not part of polite society. And he came... He said he came for people who needed him. Now, the self-righteous people needed him desperately, but they didn't see him, right? So I'm not sure how Jesus would be encountered in the average evangelical church in Canada today. I'm not sure. Some people would say, wow, that's great, and hang on every word he says. Other people would say, he's a weirdo. Watch out. He's not, he's not balanced, you know, whatever that means. He's, you know, I can't trust this guy. He's too out there. 
There is something attractive about Jesus, but also repelling at the same time. So God, when I say that God, Christmas is a subversive act of God, do you know what subversive means, kids? Like this, okay, imagine this is the surface of the water. What kind of boat goes underwater on purpose? On purpose, a submarine, right? And then it comes back. That's how it's designed. It's supposed to come back up. So subversive means that you kind of undercover, right? So when I say that Christmas is a subversive act of God, it's like God is sneaking up in the human race and offering to give them this huge hug. He's not going to force people to love him. God does not force people to obey. He invites out of love. At least the first time around. The second time when Jesus comes back, everyone's going to have to say, okay, you're the boss. But at least for us this first time, um, God will lovingly invites us into his family. We're so used to people exercising power and pushing people around, and it's not pretty. In fact, if you know anything about history, Christian history, after Christmas, about 300 years later, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And then I think things kind of went downhill. Because all of a sudden, the government and the church were like this. They were kind of in bed together. They were cooperating with each other and scratching each other's backs. And that caused huge problems for the gospel. Because being, instead of being um, identified with the poor and lowly like Jesus was, they became um, connected to the power structures of this world. And people would actually make governments um, force people to become Christians, which is just stupid. A look at this song from Mary. He says, she says, God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's, he's brought down rulers from their throne, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. That was Mary's song when she realized she was pregnant with Jesus. This is what God was going to do, his invasion of planet Earth. But it only took a few hundred years for people to kind of mess it up and the whole power structure thing changes. And we got something called Christendom, where um, people would force people to follow God. Now, Christendom has pretty much died out, for better or for worse. You won't get people telling you to say the Lord's Prayer at school anymore, for better or for worse. My French teacher got away with it, though. He taught us in French how to say the Lord's Prayer in Psalm 23. I could still remember little fragments. But most of my classmates didn't really care, you know. So when you impose following Jesus from top down, it generally doesn't work. Because Christianity is a subversive. It works from the bottom up. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. The sad legacy of Christendom is Canada. In Canada is a residential school system where the government and the church got in bed together. And they said, we're going to solve this problem once and for all. And all they did was created generations of misery for indigenous people. And we're still trying to unravel that one today. But the good news about Jesus is that he lifts up the humble. He fills the hungry with good things, even though the rich are sent away empty. 
That's the good news about the gospel. My desire for Elam Chapel in 2015 is that we get a hold of this gospel culture and we start living it out. If this is such good news, I, I would love for us all to be like the shepherds, running around, banging on doors. Well, maybe not literally banging on doors, but saying, you won't believe what Jesus did in my life. This is amazing. You know? And we'll be helping people like seeking wise men from, from other cultures. We'll be helping them find Jesus as well. All the men in Elam Chapel will be stand-up guys, just like Joseph was. And the women will have a heart to follow God, just like Mary is. That's, that's my dream for Elam in 2015. Well, kids, you've been very patient. Blake, you're amazing. Don't turn around. And uh, we're going to pray, and we're going to go. We're going to sing our way out. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will help us to apply all these lessons for Christmas. Thank you for all these, how these stories all weave together and that you are here to lift up the humble and cast down the proud. Father, I pray in this next year that you will help us develop a gospel culture at Elam Chapel where anyone can come and experience the love of God and where your Holy Spirit and your angels regularly show up and speak to us and we obey. So we pray this confidently in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.